HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. My farm is on the Navajo Nation in Arizona. And I want people to believe it's possible to grow food in our environment, even if there's climate crisis, even if there's lack of resources. You do have to spend a lot of time looking for those resources, but it's possible to do this. You'll hear more about that story on this episode of No Farms, No Future, a podcast by American Farmland Trust. I'm John Piotti, President and CEO of American Farmland Trust. In each new episode, we'll take up a critical challenge faced by farmers. Join us to hear their voices as they face tough decisions facing their world and ours. For the rest of this episode, we'll turn it over to our producer, Gail Chaddock. Thank you, John. Regenerative farming is a fairly recent term, but concern about improving soil health has been around since farming was invented. Sherilyn Yazi began farming in the Navajo Nation, in part to make sure that children had access to good food, but in the process, she learned how to turn dust into rich, productive soil. But first, we're here with Ashley Brooker, who is the Ag Conservation Innovation Program Manager for American Farmland Trust. Ashley, how did you get interested in farming? Well, you know, I grew up on a corn, soy, wheat, and hog farm in northwest Indiana, but I actually really had no interest in agriculture or farming as a career. So I went into hospitality management and uh, traveled all over the country for about 10 years managing hotels and resorts. I took a little bit of a sabbatical from that career, and that's when I started working for my local soil and water conservation district. That led me to working for a statewide nonprofit in Indiana and eventually led me to working with American Farmland Trust and doing what I'm doing now. Clearly, there's something about farming that still speaks to you, even when it didn't as a career choice. Tell us more about that. What, what appeals to you about thinking about soil and farms? Yeah, so it actually is more the farmers um, than 
the farming and the act of, of agriculture. I think that there's such an interesting culture within the agricultural community um, that you really don't understand or, or maybe aren't even aware of unless you're a part of that community. It is a, a tight-knit community open to helping each other and supporting each other. I don't want to make generalizations, but for the most part, really looking at the bigger picture when it comes to their farms. Their income stream is important to them, but also the rivers and the streams that might run alongside their acres, the soil that they are farming on, their neighbors and what their farms are doing. There's been a lot of interest around things like regenerative farming or sustainable farming or soil health and water quality focused practices. When you talk about regenerative farming practices, big term. Is that a recent term? The idea of regenerative farming has been around for a long time. And it's been used more frequently in the past couple of years. My father farms in Northwest Indiana. Anytime I think I'm taking a new idea to him, he reminds me that that's something that my grandfather did or my great grandfather just didn't have the same fancy terms back then. <laughs> I think that there has been an awakening almost within the agricultural community of everything that not only they can do to repair damage that may have even been done before they had the land that they farm. Maybe it was previous generations, previous owners. They're now repairing that damage and also rebuilding that soil and changing it so that it's more resilient to a lot of the extreme weather conditions that we see coming through that we don't have any control over. But uh, farmers need to adapt so that their products can survive these huge weather swings that we see come through. It's interesting that the weather is helping to impel some of this. You know, this is a kind of retro way to frame a question, but there was a time when you couldn't have a discussion without saying, what's in, what's out? What are the practices that are negative in the eyes of lots of farmers that may not have been before? Yeah, there's tillage, a really aggressive tillage is something that a lot of farmers, many soil health farmers specifically, are trying to move away from. A lot of that reason is because it is time consuming. Gas prices are high, so it's expensive. And if that is one practice that you can easily remove from your rotation of practices, then that's a really quick first step. Cover hmm. crops are a huge buzzword right now. Everything from radishes and rye to turnips and clover and sunflowers. And you hear farmers talking about 21-way mixes that they've put. Um, that's 21 <laughs> different species that they have put out for cover crops. So those are the entry-level soil health practices that we're seeing out there and that are really popular, but there's a whole list of different practices that different people are trying on large scale, small scale, whatever you can think of, folks are getting out there and trying stuff. With American Farmland Trust, you're working with farmers on a lot of these projects. Can you tell us changes that uh, these practices have made in people's lives? Sure. Like I said, regenerative agriculture is not the implementation of one or two practices. It is a systems approach that is a long-term commitment. So implementing a suite of practices that all complement each other so that 
when you get too much water in the springtime with those spring rains, the water can drain off faster through the soil instead of pooling on the top and running off into our waterways by making sure that your soil aggregation is really strong and that you have those earthworms in there and you have those different channels for the water to run through. That is going to help you build that bank of water availability so that when the tap shuts off in August and we don't see any more rain for two months or three months, those roots and those crops are going to be able to pull that water out of the ground that was stored there previously and didn't just run off again into our waterways. Our water is going to be clearer, cleaner across the board in the surrounding areas and even on downstream into those larger areas like the Gulf of Mexico that we often see problems with. So making sure that water availability is consistent through the year, that's something that having that conservation plan in place with that suite of practices is going to allow farmers to do And it really comes down to helping all farmers find that network of other farmers that are like them, that they can share ideas with, and building that support and that confidence uh, across all of our farming communities. We're going to be talking with Sherilyn Yazi, and it sounds like she is dealing with enormous difficulties. Yeah, and that that really speaks to the diversity of challenges that we see from our farmer applicants across the country and why it is so tough to choose the few awardees that we're able to give out. Access to water is one of their main challenges, looking at how regenerative practices can um, hold water in that bank for you throughout the growing season, allow you to use less water in irrigation is really helpful. Um, It's a long road of a lot of investment. So a lot of a lot of practices, you know, I mentioned no-till or cover crops, you can do them just one season and then do something else another season. But to get the maximum benefit from these practices and to really turn something around like our farmers and our drier states, it's a multi-year conservation plan that people are having to put together. So it's not just looking at one practice, but integrating a whole suite of customized practices into a long-term plan. And that's expensive. Not only implementing the practice itself, for example, purchasing fencing to integrate livestock, but building that plan with a technical expert, looking at a full five, 10 years of what that is going to look like and committing to that while still being flexible enough to make changes. So whether that is bringing in soil amendments, whether that is bringing in residue from other places, if your soil is so poor that you don't have enough residue to build that organic matter that those earthworms love, all of that is really expensive. And so that's where we are hoping with the Brighter Future Fund, we can offset some of those costs a little bit. What gets you excited about the results of this work? Our natural resources in general are so important to us. And protecting our farmland, whether that is through easements or whether that is protecting the soil itself and making sure it's as healthy as possible, 
is really important. We see that every day as um, we talk about climate change and we talk about resilient agriculture, we can point to the science of it. But what actually gets me really excited is knowing that we are helping people build resilience within their business, within their family, allowing them some security that they can keep going for another year. Thank you, Ashley. Let's talk now to a farmer who used these methods to turn less than an acre of dust into a model farm, showing how cultivation of fresh food could work in the Navajo Nation. We're talking with Sherilyn Yazi, who's co-owner of Coffee Pot Farms. Sherilyn, what can you tell us about the Navajo Nation? What's it like to live there? The Navajo Nation, there's about over 400,000 enrolled members, but not all of us live on the res, on, on the nation. About 70% of our, our people live in cities like Phoenix, Albuquerque, and then uh, the rest of us are near home, and our homes are in Arizona, New Mexico, and parts of Utah. And then we do have some of our relatives in Colorado, but the way it's kind of drawn officially, it covers those three states. And so they usually say it's about the size of, I believe, Virginia. And we're in the Four Corners area. That is incredible country. Oh, thank you. I, I love my home. I mean, I, I can never, ever get sick of the, the sunrises or the sunsets. It never gets old to me. <laughs> and... You know, I've been living here in Dalcom for many, many years. I grew up here. I was raised here. You know, I got to see um, my grandparents herd sheep and also traditional cornfields. What prompted you to go into farming yourself? Oh, man, that's a long story. (laughs) Good. We have plenty of time. Okay. Well, what got me into farming is really, you know, my background has been in social work. That's where I got my degree. And then it took me to working with kids in the school setting. I was working with Navajo County Public Health Nutrition Services Program. And I was a manager for nutrition services for 13 years. And we did a lot of prevention services. And what that means basically is we got to go into the classrooms and talk about, you know, eat your five fruits and vegetables every day. However, on Navajo, we don't have a lot of grocery stores. We have about 13 grocery stores and a lot of our families are on food stamps. They want to stretch a lot of their budgets. And so they're picking things that might not be as healthy. And that got me to really thinking as Navajo people, we're supposed to be farmers and ranchers. And my paternal grandparents and my grandmother, they had sheep horses, cattle, they had cornfields. And for whatever reason, you know, it skipped a generation. And a lot of our community people, a lot of people my age are not growing food. We're we're going into cities and we're getting jobs. That got me to thinking, well, that's probably why we have a lot of high rates of chronic diseases like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, because we're not eating those healthy foods. It's leading me to really understanding why are those policies, the systems, why are they like that? Why are we not able to 
grow food the way we used to? Why can't we have more sheep? Why can't we have cattle? Why is our water the way it is? We don't have a lot of access to water. We don't have a lot of access to grocery stores. And so a lot of this just was the asking that question, why? Why? So it kind of got me to, well, I won't know this. I won't be able to find out if I don't do it myself. So I quit my job and my husband and I was lucky enough. He was able to say, well, I'll go with you on this journey and we're going to figure out what, how to do this, how to become farmers, where there's all of these things that we have a lack of funding, lack of whatever. You know, that's kind of what got me into this. We'll be back with Sherilyn in a moment. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. Stay with us for the rest of this episode of No Farms, No Future. HRN is thrilled to be the home of this new podcast because America's irreplaceable farmland grows our food and supports a trillion-dollar-a-year agriculture economy. Farmland is the foundation of our rural communities, providing jobs, recreational opportunities, and a deep connection to the land. Farms are also critical in the fight against climate change. Learn more about American Farmland Trust and how to get involved at farmland.org. Now let's return to today's show. And now we're back with Sherilyn. That is a great story, actually. Starting with questions and landing where you did. Let's start with simple things. You mentioned water. What's the issue with water for you? Oh, man. <laughs> it's another long story. <laughs> um, it's okay. Our Navajo Nation, this year, you know, I've been calculating since I started growing food, calculating how much water we get. So this year and last year, we got about 15 inches of rain. But three years before that, we had like less than one inch of rain. And we're in a, this continuous drought on Navajo, and we're not able to get the rains the way we used to. My grandparents know how the rains came, and they would do a lot of dry land farming. They would be able to move their sheep around and graze based on where the water and the rains were landing. And so we don't have access to water the way in big cities because, you know, it costs so much to put these infrastructures in place for a lot of our communities and people who want to be close to the land, if they want to be farmers, ranchers, or sheep herders, they have to rely on hauling water. Since we started growing food, Mike, my husband, he's been hauling water and we calculated that he started spending about 16 hours a week just hauling water. And then some of this wow. time, it was, especially during the, the years where there's not a lot of rain, he was doing this every day. How far does he have to go for good water? He was going about 20 miles one way. Wow. Just to get water. With $5 a gallon gasoline? Now it's five. Yes. Now it's crazy high. <laughs> well, how about the soil? What kind of soil did you have to work with when you started out? Looking at this drought that has been happening, we're not getting a lot of vegetation. And so what I've learned from farming is that you need to have organic matter to be able to break down. And then the microbes and all these little bugs that we can't see in the soil, um, they're actually using that material to eat and then they multiply. 
what I understand from just the little that I know, the small time I've been farming, is that we don't have that in our in my backyard. Like, you know, if our neighbors or our relatives have sheep or if they have horses or cattle, there's a lot of this overgrazing that happens. So it just kind of tends to turn into a lot of dust. And so you're mm. going to have to spend a lot of time yeah. just building the soil back up. How did you learn what you needed to learn to do that? Well, I was fortunate to be able to learn from my brother and his teacher was Kim Koschenhau with Ashokala Gardens from Snowflake. And she had the same conditions that we were in. Her soil is not that good, mostly um, clay and her environment, its temperatures get really cold, real hot. And then she was living off grid no electricity or running water. So I went to ask her and say, you know, can I learn from you how to grow? I want to be able to learn how to grow things from seed. I want to be able to learn how you're building your soil. And so she has been doing this for so long. She's worked um, at a community college teaching. And that's where I just kind of like, I'm just a beer apprentice. Whenever I can come once a week, twice a week, you know, I went to spend some time with her. Really interesting story. How did you connect with American Farmland Trust? During the pandemic, we needed to pivot what we were doing and we wanted to grow more food. And I knew that we have to start working on that soil. And so I was lucky enough to find them on the internet and I was able to find that they had a grant proposal. And so we submitted one and we were lucky enough to get it. (laughs) (laughs) We're lucky enough to talk to you about it. (laughs) Thank you. Tell me what you asked for and what they gave you and what happened to it. We asked to use our grant to purchase a product. My teacher, Kim, knows a soil scientist. He has a product. And as you apply it, it helps to hold in more water. And then at the same time, it's also feeding the soil. And so it's starting to build. And so each time we plant, We put down an application of it. And then we also, just to kind of speed up the process, we do bring compost on site. And so we've been doing that for about, well, I guess since we started. And so now I'm able to see that parts of our garden beds, you can see like almost like two to three inches of this black soil that's starting to happen. And I'm like, holy moly, this is like (laughs) crazy. (laughs) It's like magic. (laughs) That must have been exciting. How long did it take to see a difference? It took about two years. And then you can pick up the soil and you can see it stays, you know, the moisture, you know, there's, it's moist and you smell it and it just smells so earthy and you're like, ooh, just, it smells delicious. (laughs) Describe what kind of impact is this having on neighbors who can see what you're doing? Are there others now interested in heading down this path? When people ask to come and see and tour the farm, as small as it is, where it's just half an acre, everybody leaves from our farm and they're like, I didn't think about that little piece that I saw. I didn't realize that you could grow beets, kale, or tomatoes, or soil. It could be built up the way you've done this, or 
they see tools and they're like, I didn't know that there was that kind of tool. Or they see our small processing room and they're like, oh, that's how you would do this. Or they see the solar system and they're like, whoa, you know, you could have electricity out here. (laughs) And then the last thing recently again is that we were able to have a well drilled on site. And so we now have tapped into water. Our well is 360 feet. And we were able to pay for that with crowdfunding and also some grant monies. I want people to believe it's possible to grow food in our environment, even if there's climate crisis, even if there's lack of resources. You do have to spend a lot of time looking for those resources, but it's possible to do this. Were you surprised at how many groups there were out there actually eager to help? I was. Um, I really am surprised. There's so many people that want good things for everybody. Usually on social media or on the news, you always just see the negative things. And we need to be seeing more positive things. We need to be talking about it. We need to be getting together and, and talking about how we could help each other. Again, this is coming from probably my social work side is that there's looking at the strength perspective. What is your strength and let's build upon it instead of really just focusing on negativity. Isn't that what sustainable agriculture is? Looking at what the strengths are and building on them? Yeah. Looking at what you have to work with, whatever you have, and you work with that and you figure it out. And that's what I think I love about farming. Every day is different. You're solving problems every day. And sometimes you don't even think about it that way. That's what I think the pandemic has really helped us because, again, there was a lot of help from programs, just like the grant that we received. There were many nonprofits, many small business programs that were helping. And we were lucky enough to also apply to a different program to help our business grow. And, you know, before we were trying to just do small farm stand. And during the pandemic, we implemented like a food box. And so we're trying to figure out how to grow like a CSA, a community supported agriculture. We're now in farmers markets. We were able to learn how to do marketing. So we have a website. We try to post online as much as we can just to let people know who we are. And with that, I think it's gotten people to see us and know about us, especially in our communities. Someone wants to follow in your footsteps. They're in an environment that doesn't look promising, conducive to growing much of anything. What does a beginning look like? I think find somebody who has similar conditions like you and ask them, can I go work on your farm? Because you need to know how that's going to feel for you. I've been there. You you get romantic about, oh, I want to do farming. And you think, oh, I'm going <laughs> to wear this. I'm going to be out there like this and take all these selfies. And I want, you know, so you kind of get this romantic idea about it. But then When it's really hot and you have to be out there and you're sweating and you're like, (laughs) you know, so you need to experience that you need to and you need to get your hands dirty, your nails are and your fingers are going to always have dirt in it. and, And you have to be okay with that. And so you have to be out there and just to try it. 
And then afterwards, if you're going to really do it, then take those steps to start looking for some money to put aside for your infrastructure and start planting and then get help. I didn't know there are many programs out there, people that want to help. Go find them. Talk to people. And then also look for teachers who are good at what they do. And you're like, I want to be like that person. Well, go find out. Go go find out how they got there and ask questions. Just keep asking those why questions. Listen, we are so grateful to you for spending the time with us, Sherilyn, really. Thank you. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think would be helpful for our listeners to know? Yeah, I do want to make sure that I introduce myself in in Navajo. Um, I don't know how many people out there listen, but you know, I just want to make sure. We would love that. I'd like to make sure I acknowledge, you know, where I come from. So yeah, So I just said my clans, um, my mom's side, my dad my paternal and um, maternal grandparents, who they were. Um, and so just want to say, thank you. Would you mind saying that in English as well? I think anyone hearing you would be interested in what you just said. So my, my clans, um, the first one on my mom's side is one who walks, one who walks around. My dad's side is big water clan. My mom's, my grand grandfather is um, Bitterwater clan, and then my paternal grandfather is uh, Salt People. And how did you say thank you? Ahiehat. Uh, Ahiehat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Sherilyn, and thank you as well to AFT's Ashley Brooker for her work with the Brighter Future Fund, which supports veterans, beginning farmers, and groups that have historically been marginalized in farming. If you want to know more about the Brighter Futures Fund, check it out on our website, farmland.org. Usually we end our podcast by previewing the next one. Today we look back at our last podcast to honor farmer Josh Sorrells in memoriam. By all accounts, Josh was born to farm, and loved by everyone. In addition to working his family farm, he owned the Cold Mountain Nursery in Canton, North Carolina, with his wife and parents. He was president of the Hayward County Cattlemen's Association and a former board member of the North Carolina Flower Growers Association. A more joyful voice and support of life on the land would be hard to find. In our last podcast, Josh spoke with us about preserving farmland, a central concern of his life. He promised to continue his conversation with us, a promise we dearly wish we were able to keep. Our thoughts are with his friends and family and all those he assisted in joining him in his life's calling. Thank you, Josh. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.